It's nice to be back with you in Trinity. Uh, this uh, lady in the second row was asking me had I spoken here before, and I said, yeah, but with COVID, it actually seems like a lifetime ago, um, 2019. But it's good to be back with you here in Trinity. And thanks to the readers there for reading those texts. The very ancient texts, those written literally thousands and thousands of millennia ago. But the thing about those ancient texts I think that all of us have to wrestle with is, what is their applicability within our sophisticated uh, 21st century world? In the Irish context where I grew up, for those of us who were religious leaders during our 30-year internal civil war, which primarily was about land, identity, and religion, we most certainly had to ask ourselves questions as religious leaders, uh, where people were almost killing in the name of God, in the name of land, and in the name of political identity. We had to ask ourselves questions like, can these ancient texts spill into the public square and actually make a difference? The Anglican clergy person, uh, John Stott, who died a few years ago at the age of 92, uh, talks about Methodist theology like a bird with two wings. And John Stott suggests if you kind of lop off one of those wings, the bird obviously collapses. The two wings of Methodist theology are personal holiness and social holiness. And I sometimes wonder in our kind of 21st century entertainment-orientated world, are a lot of churches simply not more than entertainment centers, where people come on a Sunday morning to get a high. And we forget about social holiness, and it doesn't seem to spill into the public square. I'm sure both Marissa and Catherine and Steve invariably on pastoral visits are asked the question that I guess I was asked hundreds, hundreds of times. Gary, why is the world such a mess? And kind of tongue in cheek, I often used to suggest back to them, hopefully it was a kind of a cheeky prophetic sense of humor. I said, I think it's our fault. Because the church is not out there, it's primarily in here. And if you think that analogy is wrong, Jesus talks about uh, rubbing salt into the carcass of a putrefying society. And it's very difficult to do that if the majority of our Christian existence is spent within the rarefied atmosphere of church. Uh, let me give you a little pop quiz. Anyone here like Motown? Come on, some of you do. Just me, I'm your only person in church likes Motown. There must be more than me. Motown, okay, Motown, okay. What do you want me to, want me to preach with an Irish accent or an American accent? I can do an American accent if you want, but I'll just stick to my Irish. So let me, uh, so a song going back to the 60s when it was first uh, muted, when this old world is getting me down, I know a place that's trouble-proof up on the roof. Who sang that? 
The Drifters, good. Something, and uh, Carol Keane as well, who was born Carol Klein. I like her version, I must confess, the best. But interestingly, in many ways, it kind of typifies the church. When this old world starts getting me down, I know a place that's trouble-proof up on the roof. And almost, it's like an analogy of the kind of 21st century church. We're up on the roof, we're doing our aerobics, our women's studies, our men's studies, but keep us away from the mess in the street. And we're looking towards heaven, just waiting on Jesus and his holy helicopter to come to take us home to heaven. Theology is not like that. And those texts in Isaiah were talking about faith spilling in to conflicted spaces. And so as clergy leaders in the Irish context, we had to ask ourselves that question. Does church continue to remain up on the roof where it's trouble-proof away from the chaos and the mess and the dirt and the sectarianism and the racism and the bigotry and the anti-Semitism of the streets below? Or can those ancient texts spill into those spaces and make a difference? In the mid-1980s, we put together a publication called For God and His Glory Alone. And you may ask me, Gary, like, why did you use that title? Well, because people on the pro-British side who were pursuing political violence or terrorism were using the phraseology, for God and Ulster. All right. Those on the pro-Irish and the IRA side who were using terrorism and political violence to bring about a united Ireland were using phrases like, for God and Ireland. God's not Irish. He's not British. And trust me, dear Americans, he is not American. (laughs) Because Paul says quite clearly that my citizenship primarily is in heaven. He says that very clearly in his text. That while I may hold a British passport, an Irish passport, that my prime identity is as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Northern Ireland's a very, very tiny space. Just 1.6 million people during our conflict. But over that 30-year period, we had 47,000 people injured with 36,000 shootings, 22,000 armed robberies, 30,000 people went through our penal system with 16,000 bombings and almost 4,000 dead. And that tiny population, and I often, for American audiences or congregations, extrapolate those figures into your space. So very simply put, if our civil unrest that lasted for 30 years had have taken place in the US, population-wise, you would have had 700,000 dead, 6 million political prisoners, 9 million injuries, 7 million shootings, and 3 million bombings. And people often ask me, Gary, when you're not in the United States or working in the Israeli-Palestinian theater, what does your main work in Ireland look like? It's legacy. It's dealing with the past. It's ensuring that a fragile peace process doesn't unravel. 
Because at the root of our conflict was toxic politics and toxic religion, where we were able to demonize each other in the name of God. And that passage, three passages that were read to us in Isaiah, talk about what I call the politics of healing. To ask can theology facilitate a politics of healing? Because sectarianism in my space was a, a way of life. It was an absolute sectarian cockpit. And so I ask you this morning as people living within the United States that you need to ask yourselves what cockpits are alive and well in the United States today. And can theology spill into those cockpits, whatever title you may want to put upon it? And so Isaiah, writing millennia ago, wrestles with these questions. And he actually brings about what I call a kind of uh, theological, a pastoral process, and it's sequential. There is a sequence to it. There is a thought process in it. Because in the first reading, in those chapters 1 to 39, what Isaiah does and asks us to do, he does a socio-economic and political critique of an unjust society. So when people say about politics in church, I don't do politics in church as regards uh, Republican rallies or Democrat rallies or in my space, Ulster Unionist rallies or Sinn Féin rallies. But it's the role of the church to critique an unjust society. Because it's the role of the church to shape the outer space. So in those first chunk of chapters, the first 39, read them. Isaiah critiques what he calls an unjust political society. And in the second chunk of verses there from 40 to 55, chapters 40 to 55, he names the pain of loss. He names catastrophe. He names trauma. He processes what we call a community's hurt and a community's displacement. But he doesn't leave it there. Because the thing about theology, it's meant to give hope. And in the final chapters from chapter 56 onwards in Isaiah, the prophet does what is called a release of imagination. Talks about a new beginning, a new future. But if it's going to be theologically based... It's got to be rooted in inclusion. It's got to be rooted in justice. It's got to be rooted in peace. And what Isaiah is saying to us that we need not always to read the Bible through what he calls a kind of individualistic mentality. That everything is centered on me. As one writer of another generation said, God made man in his image and we have returned the favor. So what we simply do is we remake God to look like us. God is a white, European, middle-aged man like me and I have remade God in his image. And extremists theologically across the globe do that. Be it in my space, in your space, in the Middle East, and in South Africa, as we were talking about early. People remake God in their particular image. 
And so a writer commenting on that said, while we can read the Bible within the individualistic framework, we need to be careful that we don't push aside a number of these texts which basically are community texts. So I'll give you a classic example. Uh, Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. I know the plans I have for you to give you a future and a hope. That was not written to one person. That was written to Israel. It was a community-based text. And yet we have this ability to individualize every single text to me. And one uh, young woman who's a theological blogger says that too many of us uh, sophisticated 21st century Westerners suffer from what she calls a Disney princess theology. Now, it's okay our kids on Christmas morning waking up with a magic wand and putting some tiara and we take videos or iPhone photos off them. That's quite fun. But if we bring that kind of mentality continually into our Christian life, it is fundamentally wrong. Because invariably what we do in Scripture as we look at Scripture, it becomes about me. You know, I'm Peter never Judas. I am the woman anointing Jesus' feet, never the Pharisees. We are the Jews escaping slavery. We are never Egypt. The Pharisees. A group of the religious elite of the day. Jesus Christ more with the religious elite of the day than he did with anyone else. So I said everybody, including me as a religious leader, always beware of people who put themselves as the religious elite and don't spill out into the public space. And one of Jesus' encounters, again in the public space, was with a Roman centurion. Let me contextualize that because unless you read the Bible contextually, you miss the point. So Jesus is a first century Jew. They are under occupation by the most efficient military machine on planet Earth, namely the Roman Empire. So think of that. I mean, the kind of jackboot is on the neck of the Jews. And Jesus engages with a Roman centurion, the absolute enemy, the other And how dare you, Jesus, come out with a statement, I have not seen so great a faith in all of Israel. You're talking about our enemy. You're talking about the oppressor. You're talking about the persecutor. And you're saying this centurion has a greater faith than all of the theological experts who have been studying the texts For millennia? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. How do you reconcile that? Because within our faith, too many times we want this, what I call, theological predictability. We don't critique theology. And it's absolutely crucial to critique theology and the way we do theology. And that is what Isaiah was doing. I mean, all of us within this building know today 
that religion has been responsible for some of the most toxic acts of hatred on planet Earth. Remember a number of years ago speaking in York, St. John University, northeast of England, and this uh, young uh, Japanese professor in her early 30s was talking about a topic I knew absolutely nothing about called Shinto nationalism, which simply was the rise of nationalism within certain elements of Japanese society. But the one thing I do remember from this young woman's lecture was she said this, an incomprehensible act becomes comprehensible when told in conjunction with religion. An incomprehensible act becomes comprehensible when told in conjunction with religion. So how many groups in your space, in my space, in other spaces, tell me that God is on their side and not on the other person's side. As you look at American politics at the moment, uh, Jonathan Sachs uses that uh, word linguistic violence where literally in your space, fellow Christians are verbally assassinating one another theologically. I mean, the first hymn we sang there today I went through every line of it, was asking about unity, about humility, about togetherness, about engagement. And then we wonder why people don't want to come to church. Most 20s and 30s say to me, Gary, I am looking for truth that is lived. I want to see it lived out. But as you read your newspapers, you must ask yourselves, why has theology become so toxic within your space and within my space? And some of the work I'm trying to do in the United States at the moment is asking people to press the pause button. Both Republicans and Democrats, particularly people of faith, and to ask yourselves logically, what is the most important thing in life? I was doing a lecture Tuesday week back along with Republicans and Democrats at the Carter Center. Uh, the, the Republican there, who's a friend of mine, Leo, very conservative Republican, doesn't make him a monster. Trust me if you're a Democrat. I stay with Republicans here. I stay with Democrats here. Most of them are pretty normal kind of people. So I think you need to ask yourselves the question, what is happening in your space that has allowed it to become so toxic? And let me try to just move slightly away from theology to psychology at the moment. Jonathan Hyatt is a social psychologist. He's an atheist. But he wrote an article recently, and he opened it up talking about theology, talking about the Tower of Babel and the confusing language. And obviously then he took the comparison from the Tower of Babel, spilled it into the American context and said, why are we not hearing each other? But he quoted a study, hear this clearly, called The Hidden Tribes of America. This is what he said. Social media, okay, sometimes good, sometimes absolutely toxic. And he referred to a group called the Devoted Conservatives, okay, very right of the Republican Party, of which there are just 8% they are responsible for 56% of social media posts, 8% of Republicans. 
Democrats, sorry, you're worse, okay? 10% of Democrats are responsible for 70% of social media posts. And so I'm asking the question, along with other Republican believers and Democrat believers, where's, where's the center ground in America? Where are people like yourselves who come to church regularly, who serve God faithfully, where is your voice in the public square? And thankfully, a number of churches and other faith-based institutions are not trying to change Republicans into Democrats or vice versa, but they're trying to say, what is the most important thing in life? And in that, I've simply said this. Politics is temporal. The gospel is eternal. I can tell you categorically, politics has never revolutionally transformed or changed my life. In fact, I probably confess over years of toxic politics in the Irish context, it's changed my life in a way that has changed me how to think politically and to move away from violent rhetoric. But I'll tell you what's changed my life profoundly is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that is actually eternal. And that is what lasts. And I ask you and I ask myself, what value system do I want to give to my kids? Do I want them to hate the other, teach the Irish Catholic to hate the uh, British Unionists and vice versa? Is that the legacy I want to leave with my children? And I said this in this lecture in the Carter Center 10, 12 days ago. I told them stories, you know sometimes you look back at your school photographs, you know, when you say, well, they're dead, they're dead, they're dead. I went to an old boys school. And I can look back at a photograph of us as teens, and a third of them are probably dead because of toxic politics and toxic religion. Because as young boys, 15, 16, and 17, they listen to their political masters or their theological elites and they took up the gun to defend their particular constituency in the name of God. So I asked this group of Americans that were tuned into that, is that what you want for your 15 or 16 or 17 or 18 year old kid? Is that what you want to give them? Is that gonna be their life script, teaching them to despise and verbally assassinate another person? Because likely enough for all of us in this building today, no matter why you're a Republican, Democrat, or other, each of us are made in the image of God. You know, God's fingerprint is in my head, it's in your head, it's in your head. That is factual. And that's what politics can do when it goes wrong. Teaching you to hate a person who's made in the image of God. And so what do we do using texts like Isaiah and others? We brought people together. And maybe this is something Trinity could think about. Maybe Stephen Catherine will curse me forever for suggesting this, but now that I've been on the sentence, I guess I better finish it. Should you create a space where Republicans in this space and Democrats with a good facilitator humanize each other? Why should you do that? I've been a student of the Holocaust or the Shoah all my life. Uh, my uncle Jimmy, uh, who was a World War II veteran, whose funeral I did when he was, died at the age of 82, bought me a book as a 12-year-old. You kind of go like, what a book to buy a 12-year-old, but he did. 
It was called the scourge of the swastika. And just looking at how Nazism, and particular Hitler, who was not exactly a kind of observant Catholic, but Hitler was clever enough. Hitler, like many political leaders, used religion in a poisonous way. Here's what he said in the second chapter of my camp. Today I believe I'm acting in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator in defending myself against the Jews. The first question is, how do you know, Adolf, you were acting in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator when you never ever even darkened a church door? But he was clever. So beware of any political leader who uses theology and uses religion to teach you to hate other people. Some of my friends are dead because of people like that in my space. And trust me, we don't have a monopoly on people like that. Let me tell you about another leader who you all know, Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin wears a gold cross around his neck. His mother was a Christian, his father was an atheist, he was secretly baptized. Putin, in recent months, has commissioned a cathedral in Moscow where he has asked for a picture of him, Joseph Stalin. Now, Stalin murdered between 9 million to 60 million people. This is a Russian Orthodox church. As well as pictures of other great military leaders. Putin is a practicing Russian Orthodox person. And as I mentioned in the previous service, when Ukraine was being invaded, despite all the lies, they're having a military exercise. I know your administration, the British administration, the Irish administration, the European Union were asking, what the hell is going on on that border? And eventually swept in. And we all asked the question, Kiev, Kiev, why Kiev? Why, what's the deal with Kiev? Is it because it's a capital? Is it some geopolitical significance? No, it has religious significance. And here's why. In 988, long, long time ago, another Vladimir, Vladimir the Rus, R-U-S, which obviously the name Russia came from, converted to Christianity and insisted that every person living in Kiev was mass baptism in the Depna River. There and then, the Holy Mother Russian Orthodox Church was born. And that's why Putin said recently, the Belarus, Russia, and the Ukraine, that is the Russian Orthodox Church. In 2019, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church broke away from the Russian Orthodox Church. So it is a religious war, and total answer is no. But there's toxic religion playing about there as well. There's nothing wrong with being a Russian, Irish, British, Israeli, Palestinian, American. There's nothing wrong with those identity. But when you combine identity with ethnicity, with theologies of superiority, it becomes absolutely toxic. So that's why people like you and people like me need to critique American politics and need to critique British politics and Hungarian politics. Where I read the other day, there is now a bust in the Hungarian parliament of a Nazi collaborator. 
If we're not critiquing that, who is critiquing that? Let me just finish with a final story. Put your hand up if you had a relative served in the Second World War. Grandparent, uncle, whatever, okay. Stacks of people, okay. My Uncle Jimmy, who I mentioned earlier, I did his funeral at the age of 82. Uh, him and my grandfather, this, this is my uh, church experience, Stephen Catherine, I ever told you a story. So my grandfather fought in the First World War, was severely injured against the uh, Turks. He had a hole in his head that literally a small boy could have put his fist into. And like most men, he was pretty vain. So my early uh, boyhood memories were sitting with my grandfather on the outside of the pew, tiny Gary in the middle and my uncle Jimmy here. I was stuck between these two military men but my grandfather used to reach down to me every Sunday. He had a lot more hair than I had, I can tell you that. And he said, uh, Gary, is my wound covered? And if it wasn't, as a little boy, I'd have sort of ruffled his white hair and made sure this hole in his head was covered. He was still self-conscious of it. So they kind of military marched me to church continually. And I was saying I was preaching at church in Fayetteville when I told this story before and not dissimilar to here. Lots of hands went up. I say categorically, unashamedly, I am immensely proud of my Uncle Jimmy. I don't know any of your relatives, but I'm immensely proud of them. Why? Because they destroyed the most toxic system of Nazism that has ever existed on planet Earth. But I do say this. Be careful when people try to use politics in a toxic way. Let me just talk a second about January the 6th, Epiphany, and the Capitol building. And I've said this publicly, if you're a Republican here, you have a total right to demonstrate. Within a democracy, there is no issue at all in relation to that. That's what democracies are for. Peaceful protest. But I did struggle when I saw people at that demonstration with t-shirts on that said, Camp Auschwitz. When I saw other people at it that said 6MNE, do you know what that means? Six million Jews were not enough. And I can tell you this categorically, I don't mind if you're a Republican or Democrat, uh, our closest friends in Orlando are Republicans, solid, decent, Christian people. Uh, when we leave here tomorrow, we go to other friends in Orlando, they're Democrats. They're solid, decent Christian people. But I'm telling you categorically, my Uncle Jimmy and your relatives did not die for some idiot prancing about in front of the Capitol building calling for another Holocaust. The church needs to call that out. Why? What created the Holocaust? Toxic theology. Read if you want Gabriel Walensky's book, Six Million Crucifixions. And what Hitler did basically was take thousands of years of Christian anti-Semitism religiously and flipped it into racial anti-Semitism and paved the way for the Holocaust. So the church needs to be above politics because politics is temporal. The gospel is eternal. And as I said at that last service, um, the uh, hymn you were 
singing there with kind of blends of uh, it is well, it is well with my soul. There is a brilliant version of that by the Nashville Singers, if you want to Google this uh, when you go home, uh, looking at that whole hymn. But there is a line in it. Uh, it's a number of different singers, uh, very Alcapoca the way they do it, where this African-American guy sings that verse where it talks about the final curtain falling on planet Earth. The phrase in the hymn is, the sky will be rolled back like a scroll when Jesus finally returns to planet Earth. And all of us in this building believe eschatologically that that will happen one day. And I know this factually. And if you disagree with every single thing I've said up to now, it doesn't bother me in the slightest. Someone, Oz Guinness once said, if Moses had have taken a straw pole in the desert, he would have been in bother. Um, so in relation to that, if you disagree, that's fine. But you can't disagree with this. When the final eschatological curtain falls on planet Earth, and one day it will, it's not going to be Joe Biden, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama, Margaret Thatcher, Boris Johnson, Angela Merkel, or Vladimir Putin standing on that stage. One person called Jesus Christ. And all those politicians will realize this. They were simply two-bit actors in a drama produced by another person called Jesus Christ. So I'm just asking you as a church, and I can say this from experience, as someone who lived through 30 years of bloody, barbaric, dirty, sectarian religion and conflict, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. We've had 4,000 suicides in our space since our conflict ended. It's over, but it's not over. So I ask you as a church unashamedly, no matter why you put an X against a Republican or a Democrat, Put your biggest acts against Jesus Christ. And ask, what would Jesus do in this toxic, messy space politically of the United States at the moment? And I think he would be saying, thank on the eternal. Disagree well, understand well. But remember Trinity Church. Your citizenship primarily is in heaven, not here. Amen.